Good evening. Good to see you guys. Okay, we can turn in our Bibles to 2 Peter, chapter 3, verse 1. 2 Peter, chapter 3, and in verse 1. This evening, we're going to talk about the truth about Christ's return. You know, as we open up this chapter, we see that Peter writes, and even before we pray, I just want to do the recap here. It says, dear friends, he writes, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior, through your apostles. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you. Peter took the time to write these thoughts, these inspirations of your Holy Spirit, that we might grow, that we might think properly, that we we might know the truth, that we may live in the knowledge of the truth. And Lord, in a world like today's world, where truth is the casualty of a culture war, we need to know the truth about you, about your word, about our lives, and about how you came and died on a cross, Jesus. Oh God, you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. He rose again on the third day and is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And these truths are being maligned. These truths are being questioned, rejected, pushed aside as antiquated. And yet we know this is the very truth, the truth of your word. Your word is truth that will save us as we put our faith in your word, our faith in you. Lord, speak to us tonight, encourage us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter addresses the same Hebrew and Gentile Christians that had received his first epistle. The very same group of people. It wasn't enough to just write once, he wanted to write again. And the purpose of both of these epistles was simply to remind them of the truth so that they might live for God. I find that interesting because it's pretty much what we do here every Sunday, every Wednesday. We remind you of the truth that you might live for God. If you want to live for God, you need to be in God's Word. Amen? You have to understand God's Word, but you need to be in God's Word so that you can live according to God's Word. And you're not going to know what the truth is if you just listen to the news. You're you're certainly not going to know what the truth is. If you just follow the culture, you're going you're to question everything, and, and you're going to be so confused, you're not going to know whether you're male or female. You're not going to know whether you should dress as a man or a woman. You're not going to know what's right or wrong, because the culture's telling you all kinds of crazy nonsense that simply isn't true. They're going to tell you that the greatest threats are things like white supremacy and climate change. and They're, they're going to tell you that we live in a world that's endangered by things that aren't even true. And yet we know the greatest danger to our world. It's it's sin. It's living after the, the world and its desires. And so Peter wants us to understand the Lord is coming again one day. This is the truth. You need to be prepared for that eventuality because it will come to pass. The theme of Peter's first epistle was living for God. We studied that together over the last few months. And the theme of his second epistle, this book we're in, is living in the knowledge of the truth. So living for God, but living in the knowledge of the truth. Together we we get a really good understanding of, of what it takes to live for God. Peter, just to recap this book, told us about the truth, the truth about Christian growth in the first chapter. That the knowledge of God and of Jesus is the true source of divine power. And that the knowledge of Jesus is supposed to effectively and productively transform our lives. Knowing about Jesus should change us. Studying his word should make us more like him. And then after teaching us about the truth about Christian growth, we then studied the truth about God's word. That God's word must be remembered frequently and his word must be firmly believed. You have to put your faith in his word and And it must be spiritually understood, which means unless you put your faith in it, you will never understand it. For these things are not discerned carnally or according to the flesh. They're discerned spiritually. 
The person of the flesh, they can't know the things of God, but the spiritual man, the spiritual woman can because they have the Holy Spirit living within them by faith, which gives them the ability to understand God's word, his heart, his will. And then we started a study, uh, which was about two weeks, on the subject of false teachers, the truth about false teachers. And I know that was a dark study because talking about false teachings and false teachers, it's just not a whole lot of fun, to be honest. But it's true, and we need to be on guard because false teachers are a danger to the church. And though they're destined for destruction, Peter took the time to describe them to the church and to all of us so that we'd recognize false teachers and be protected from them. Now, we understand what he says in verse 2. After telling us this was his second letter and that he wrote to remind them and to stimulate them uh, to, to have wholesome thinking, he says, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Well, what that basically means is Peter wanted them to uh, meditate on the teachings of the Old Testament scriptures, which we do here at Calvary Chapel. See, knowing the truth would lead them to live a holy and godly life. That's the point of writing this epistle. And he wanted them, in order to accomplish that, to meditate on the teachings of the Old Testament scriptures, but not just on them. For he also wanted them to meditate on the teachings of the New Testament scriptures. Now, of course, the New Testament was being written at this time, but notice how he describes it. He says, and not just the, uh, the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets, which would refer to the Old Testament, but he says, and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. That is the New Testament teaching that was being shared and eventually being written down. For example, First and Second Peter are examples of these teachings being written down, as are all of Paul's epistles and the epistles of James and Jude and John. These teachings were so important to the church that they were written down and preserved. But these are the sermons that were being uh, given to the church at that time, within the first century. And we're reading much of what was taught at that time. So Peter also wanted them to meditate on the teachings of what would become the New Testament scriptures. He believed that the teachings of Jesus recorded in the Gospels were God's word. And of course, they are God's word. He believed that the teachings of the apostles recorded in the epistles were God's word, and of course, they are God's word. And by sharing this, he's sort of indirectly claiming the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as a true prophet and an apostle. He's saying, God is the one inspiring me to share these things with you, and you would do well to meditate on them, to make your life and your practice the ability to think about these things and recall them that you might live according to God's word. Then he goes on in verses 3 through 9 to teach them how to deal with scoffers in the last days. Oh, this is such a valuable teaching, brothers and sisters, because the world is filled with scoffers and we are living in the last days. What's a scoffer? Someone who mocks. It's someone who scoffs at anything you might suggest from God's word being true. They scoff. They just are mocked. They dismiss it. They speak against it. They reject it. They refuse to believe it. So scoffers, let's read verses 3 through 4 as he teaches them how to deal with scoffers in the last days and teaches all of us as well. He said, first of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. That's what it means to be a scoffer, to deny the existence of God, to dismiss God's word as a lie or just as some man-made teaching. It's so important. It's so important that we know the truth about the enemies of God. It is essential that we understand what the enemies of God will do in the last days. For brothers and sisters, Peter and the people he was writing to were living in the last days, so we're even more last. (laughs) These are even more last days, later days, if you will. We are living in the last days, and boy, isn't it something how the scoffers have just multiplied over these past few years, and especially over this last year. I mean, our beliefs and our values are called hate. 
I don't know how much more scoffing you can be. And it suggests what we believe in the traditional faith of Christians and Jews throughout the centuries is being called hate. It's being called a lie. It's, being, it's called something other than what it is, which is God's word, is truth. Amen? So yeah, there are scoffers. And knowing the truth about these scoffers, these enemies of God, is essential. The Holy Spirit has warned us. You know, you take a warning seriously. You don't take a warning lightly. I've used this example before, probably because I got caught in two riptides in my life and almost drowned both times. But when the lifeguards put up that red flag and say, listen, we're giving you a warning. It is not safe for you to go into the water. You can put your feet in along the shore, but don't put yourself so far in that you can get sucked in by the undertow and end up drowning. And people every year dismiss those warnings and drown. And I was a little bit of a fool when I was a teenager. Actually, pretty foolish. One of the times I actually got in the water when the lifeguards weren't even there and got caught in a riptide. Another time the lifeguards were there, thankfully. But what I understand, what I know to be true, is that there are definitely warnings all around us from God, especially right now. And they're for the world. They're not just for us. They're for the world. Warnings. And yet, most people scoff at them. You know, oh, don't eat that. It'll make you sick. Ah. Don't, don't touch that. It'll hurt you. Ah. We scoff at the warnings. Don't get, in, don't get in the water. You might drown. Ah, I'm a good swimmer. The Holy Spirit's warned us that men would mock the truth of God in the last days. Oh, should we be surprised? I mean, we can check this one on. We could just check the box because it's happened, it's happening, and it's happening in increasing ways every day. For it says, first of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. See, they scoff at the word of God because they want to do what they want to do. So the word of God tells them that murder is a sin, that homosexuality is a sin. And because they either want to murder unborn children or live contrary to God's word in sexual relationships that are displeasing to God, they scoff. Ah! And when they scoff, what they're saying is God doesn't matter, his word doesn't matter, and I'm going to do it my way, like Frank Sinatra sang. Some of us remember Frank Sinatra. I did it my way. And that's the highway to hell. You see, the problem we need to wrestle with is that, that the Holy Spirit has made it clear, and yet people aren't taking that warning seriously, even within the church. These individuals are identified by their attitude toward the truth of God's word. They simply don't believe it. And they are motivated by their own selfish and sinful desires. They want to do what they want to do, therefore they don't care what the word of God says. You know what really makes me ill and sick to my stomach? It's not that the world doesn't believe the word of God. It's when the church doesn't believe the word of God. It's when the churches fly rainbow flags out in front of their doors. As if they don't know the truth of God's word on the subject of homosexuality. I understand, and I don't approve of, but I understand ungodly government and organizations doing that. But I find it incredibly difficult to understand how a church, any church, could ever do that. Now, don't get me wrong. Those doors are open to all, to any who will come in repentance. But to proclaim at the door, it's okay if you're a sinner. You don't have to change. We love you just the way you are. And God does love you just the way you are, but he loves you far too well to leave you in your self-made hell. He's not going to let you stay in your sin and tell you it's okay. You know, I mean, many of us remember, I mean, I, I, growing up, I remember smoking was, was prevalent. I mean, it seemed like everybody smoked. Now, I was not a person that smoked. I didn't, I didn't do that. I tried it a couple times, coughed my brains out and said, no, that's not for me. So I never really smoked. And listen, I'm not passing judgment on anybody that smokes, but there, there was a time where it was, so, it was so prevalent that like, even in my office, people would smoke at their desks. I remember there's this woman, her name was Mary Redwood. She worked for the company for like 40 years. And she was old, obviously. And she, she, she started a fire in her garbage pail. She smoked so much. I guess the ashes hit the paper. You know, not smart to put ashes in with your papers, you know. 
People smoked all over the place. And then what was amazing is then it became glaringly obvious that it would hurt you. I mean, I think it was kind of obvious already, but then they started putting warnings on the labels. This does cause cancer. This will kill you, basically. And I noticed a lot of people didn't really stop smoking. It's hard. It's addicting. I know. But I remember my company had this, this little saying. They were like, smoke, smoke free in 93. Smoke no more in 94. They didn't come up with a 95, but it probably would have been, if you want to be alive in 95, stop smoking. But here was the truth. It became very obvious that it was bad for you, and a lot of people really stopped. They really did. But you know something? There were people, and there still are people, that smoke because that's what they want. Even though they know better, they still smoke. Why is that? That is because even truth, when you don't like it, can be ignored. Did you hear what I said? Even truth, when you don't like it, can be ignored. So today, the truth of God's word is that there are sins that are being celebrated. I find it interesting that in June, they celebrate not only homosexuality, but they call it Pride Month, and pride is the greatest sin, if you ask me. What I understand to be true is that God's word should not be scoffed at But especially God's people, the church, should uphold the standard of God's word and demand that it be acknowledged as the truth, even if people struggle with sin, which we all do. It's when we back down and we say, it's okay. We're not going to tell you to stop smoking, even though we know it'll kill you. You see, that's what happens. When that happens, the church has failed in its message of salvation. Because if we don't call out sin, how can we call out salvation? How can we do that? There has to be repentance. And in order for there to be repentance, there has to be confession of sin. So people need to understand what sin is. But if the church says, we don't acknowledge sin here, we we don't recognize that, that that thing you're talking about is a sin. In fact, the only thing we consider sin is calling sin, sin. When a church takes that position, that makes me ill. It makes me sick because that is exactly what we're called to do. We're called to call people to repentance in love, as we've been talking so much about. So the Holy Spirit's warned people, but they seem to want to do whatever they want to do, you know? It's just the way it is. It's the way we are. They're motivated by their selfish, sinful desires. And, and, and these individuals... They shun the moral accountability of conscience in the word of God. The reason they dispute that God's word is real, that it's God's truth, is simply because they don't want to be held accountable to it. They want to do what they want to do. They want to live how they want to live. They don't want anyone to make them feel bad about it. In fact, they want people to celebrate their lifestyle. I never needed anybody to celebrate that I'm a heterosexual. I never needed anyone to celebrate that I like music. I never needed anyone to celebrate anything I ever did for me to make me feel good about it. Why do those living sinful lifestyles need to be celebrated? Because deep down inside in their conscience, they know it's wrong. And they want people to tell them it's right because everything within their heart and their minds tells them the truth. God's truth is glaringly available not only through his word but in his creation. So this is about drowning out truth. You see, that's what we're talking about here this evening. Now, the Holy Spirit has warned us that these men will deny the existence of God in the last days. Okay, they're going to mock the truth of God. They're going to say, ah, it's not God's truth. But then they're also going to say, God doesn't even exist. They're going to deny the existence of God. Look what it says in verse 4. They will say, where is this coming, he he promised. And ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. In other words, since this world came into being, there's no sign of God. Everything you say God said, it hasn't happened. Therefore, God doesn't exist. I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. There's a lot of people that say that. And that's how they try to get rid of that moral accountability and that conscience that tells them that how they're living is wrong. These individuals will specifically question, did you notice, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Of course they don't want Jesus to come back. If he doesn't come back, they can do whatever they want. But if he did come back, they'd be held accountable. They're going to deny the truth that Jesus is both God and man, obviously. At best, they're going to say, oh, he was a good guy. 
They're going to reject his teachings, his legends, myths, and fables, because if that's all they are, then they're not accountable to it. But like I said, even when the label says this product will cause cancer, people still do it. So you shouldn't be surprised. These individuals will specifically question God's involvement in his creation. Isn't that interesting? They question God's return, his his second coming, Jesus Christ. And they also question, as it says here in verse 4, his involvement in creation. Basically, they say everything goes on as it did since the beginning of creation. In other words, there's no sign of God in creation. They come up with theories like we evolved from apes or single-celled organisms or aliens came and you know, seeded the planet. That way, if we, we're not accountable to God. It's better to be created by aliens than to be created by God because aliens aren't going to require us to do anything or live a certain way, but God gave us his word, and if God created us, now we're accountable to him. See, it seems pretty obvious to us, doesn't it? It's actually quite obvious to them as well. That's why they yell and scream so loud and want your acceptance and celebration, because they have to drown out the inner voice, the conscience that God gave to every man and woman. You know that? You can sear your conscience, but it really never goes away. Deep down inside, there is a voice that tells you what I'm doing is wrong. And that's why they hate us and hate God's word. And hate God. You don't hate something you don't really believe in or feel that is a threat. Why do they hate us so much? Because they actually know that what we're saying is true. Deep down inside, somewhere within them, because otherwise they wouldn't take it seriously. It should be pretty obvious. Well, these individuals, as I said, specifically question God's involvement in his creation. They're going to use scientific observation, Peter says, to conclude that God does not exist. That is, they call it uniformitarianism. Everything's always been the way it is, therefore God doesn't exist. Their theories are based solely on their view of the past. They look into the past and they assume everything's always been the way it is. They assume things about the past they can't prove. You can't prove that it's always been this way. But they assume it is, and that assumption causes them to say, well, everything's the same way it's always been. Therefore, there's no sign of God being involved in creation. They'll argue that creation's just a continuation of what they call a uniform process, evolution, uniformitarianism. They assume that what we observe today has always existed as such, and that is a big assumption, and it's actually incorrect, as we'll see. Now, I find that interesting that in the first century, Peter is disputing uniformitarianism, evolution. Anyone that would stand against the truth that God created all things, he doesn't know all of those scientific theories. He doesn't need to because they've been around forever. The idea that somehow this creation came into being without God creating it, it's not a new thing. They assume that nothing's changed since the beginning of creation. Well, what we see is what we get, you know, but that's not true. In fact, the Bible tells us something other than that. But you see, we scoff at the word of God. But I want you to understand this. Yes, knowing the truth about the enemies of God is essential, and that's what we've talked about. How the enemies of God and his word think and why they think that way and how they act. But let's stop a minute and let's acknowledge that the truth about the past empowers us to live for God. You need to know your past. You know, one of the ways that socialism and communism take over a culture is by destroying their history. They used to say that in the Soviet Union, not even the past was certain. You change history. You revise it. Oh, no, America wasn't founded in 1776 with the Declaration of Independence. It goes back to a much earlier date. Where do you get that from? Well, don't ask too many questions. We're just going to promote this critical race theory and tell everybody that this, this is the way it really is and America's a racist country. Again, you're just changing, you're, you're revising the truth. You're trying to revise the past. Knowing the past empowers us to live for God. You need to know the truth about the past. And God's word is the book that will tell you about the past. Actually, right up until the moment of creation, right from the moment of creation, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There isn't any more past than that. That's about as past as you can go. Now, there's the past eternity of God before creation, but as far as we're concerned, that's as far back as you can go. And we have a book that documents that entire creative process as it was communicated 
to his people. You know, the Holy Spirit's taught us that God created the heavens and the earth. That's what the Holy Spirit says. That's what the Word of God has recorded. So when you scoff at that and come up with another theory, you are saying God's Word's not true, and I don't believe there's a God. That's exactly what you're doing. But we know better, and therefore it empowers us to live for God. For it says here, by, but they deliberately forget. They deliberately, did you see that? They deliberately forget. What does it mean to deliberately forget? Like, you don't want to go out. Oh, I forgot my keys. Well, now you can't go out because you deliberately forgot your keys. Did you really forget your keys? Or did you deliberately leave them at home so you didn't have to drive? You see, that's what they do with the truth. They deliberately forget it. It's it's a willful ignorance. It really is. They deliberately forget, it says... They deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters, also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. Now, that's fascinating to me because after dismissing uniformitarianism, this idea that the, the creation has always been the way it is today, which we know it wasn't, he then explains, listen, God created it all and then he destroyed it, reformed it, uh, What you see today isn't what was created. That's obvious because God said it was good. In fact, one day he said it was very good, and one day he said it was was good twice. So, So understand something. What we see today is not the way this planet was originally created. I I think you'd probably be glad to know that because this planet has a lot of problems. First of all, sin. But there's death. You know, there's death in this world. Animals die, plants die, people die. Death, sickness. That's not the way God created it. The Greeks made up a myth with Pandora's box, you remember. And that was sort of a poetic description of the Garden of Eden. They weren't correct, but they made up a story to explain what the truth was, that Adam and Eve sinned, and as a result of their sin, sin entered the world and death came by sin. And of course, that brought about their banishment from Eden, and then the first murder and all of the things that took place. And finally, ultimately, God, as we talked about recently, destroyed the world with a flood. And when he destroyed the world with the flood, everything changed. But let's just back up for a minute. The Holy Spirit taught us that God created the heavens and the earth. These scoffers willfully choose to forget the truth of God's word. They even ignore what we call intelligent design. Now, intelligent design doesn't assume that there's a creator. It assumes the signs of a creator. By that, it, it, it proves there's a creator by proving that someone did a design. Okay, so if you look at something intricately designed, you can infer from that design that someone designed it. Things don't just happen. I mean, this whole world tends towards entropy or destruction. Things don't tend to get better on their own. So let's think about this for a minute. You look at the cell structure, and you think, someone designed this. You look at the solar system, someone designed this. You look at atoms and molecules and elements, and you say, someone designed this. The laws of physics, there's signs of design. When you look at DNA, this is perhaps the most fascinating thing. You look at the DNA of a frog, and you look at the DNA of a cow, and you look at the DNA of a person, and the DNA of a mosquito. And you think to yourself, well, those things have nothing in common. Except that when you break down their DNA, they're different, but they all use the same language. It's kind of like for those of you who program, you know, you can do a lot of things with computer code, but different things with computer code, but the code is the same no matter what you're trying to do. So the actual code of DNA is the same throughout all creation, even though all of these different created things are different. What does that tell you? That's evidence of design. That, that doesn't just happen. So that's just one example. There are many. When you, when you look at the universe, the heavens declare the glory of God. You cannot see design in our universe. But they, these individuals, because they don't want to believe that there's moral accountability according to God's word, they forget the truth of God's word, they deny intelligent design. God created the universe, and he did so by speaking it into existence. You know that, right? 
In fact, if you read the Genesis account, and I encourage you to do this from Genesis 1, 2 through 10, you will find out that, in fact, he tells us, God tells us, he created the earth out of water and by water, which is exactly what Peter said. In fact, when you look at Psalm, book of Psalms 24, uh, verses 1 and 2, and you can check out the Genesis account for yourself, but Psalms uh, 24, verses uh, 1 and 2, it says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. He founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. So you see there, there's a, uh, an understanding that water is at the center of God's creation. In fact, when NASA is looking for uh, signs of life so they can get more funding, uh, what they do is they infer from certain data that there may have been certain crystals that could possibly have been formed if there was at one time elements for life on a planet. I, I know it sounds like I'm being ridiculous, but that's actually what they mean when they say that there may have been signs of life on Mars. They haven't found any life. They just say that there's things that could lead to possibly believing that there might have been at one time life. So you see, the whole thing is important to recognize. Even NASA knows where there is no water, there's no life. God created the heavens and the earth, and he created the earth out of water and by water. And that's what Peter tells us. And look at the account. I'm not going to read it for you tonight, but Genesis 1, 2 through 10. Watch how much water is featured as a part of the creation that God brought into existence. I'll give you a little uh, taste, so to speak. Notice even just in the first or the second verse, he said, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Then he goes on to talk about light. He talks about the waters in verse six. He talks about the water in verse nine and then through verse 10. So you see, that's exactly how it happened. But the scoffers don't want to believe that. And then God used that very water, lots of it, to forever change the face of the earth. After having created the earth out of water and by water, the Holy Spirit taught us that God destroyed the earth by a flood. Again, he used water to create, and now he uses water to destroy. Or maybe a better way of saying it is deluge and renew. For that's what he did. But the world was forever changed by the flood. Oh, yes, we believe in the flood. Why? Because it's in God's word. How could you believe in a... Because God's word is correct, and may every man be a liar. These scoffers willfully choose to deny the truth of God's word. And they deny, like they deny intelligent design, geological evidence. There's much geological evidence to the flood, and they explain it away. Because they don't want to believe that God's word is true. This is what we call willful ignorance. You know, it's interesting. We saw a lot of that this last year with so-called science. It's interesting the Bible says science falsely so-called. And you know, it's interesting, the science. Oh, but science, science. You know what science is? Science is whatever anyone in power says it is. It's not truth. So here's what happened. The springs of the great deep burst forth, according to Genesis 7, verse 11. And the floodgates of heaven opened up. Let me explain. You see, the earth was originally created differently than we experience it today. It was originally created with a great water canopy. The canopy surrounded the atmosphere as a protective layer. That's very different than what we experience today. So this idea of the earth has always been the way it is. Creation hasn't changed since the beginning. is a false assumption. You would have to have been there and recorded what happened in order for us to understand and be able to to look at it today. And there was only one person that was there And of course, that was God at creation. And then he communicated what happened to creation to his people, to the patriarchs. And they, some of them, like Noah, they actually experienced it. They wrote it down. And guess what? We have a a faithful record in God's word of what actually happened. What do they have? They have a life of sin that's in jeopardy if they actually believe the truth of God's word. So make it up. Fake news false things that never have existed. Just make it up. Now, this canopy that surrounded the atmosphere that's talked about in Genesis 1, it explains the extended lifespan of early human beings because it would have blocked neutrinos. It would have protected our bodies from solar radiation and other things that cause us to age. We know what causes us to age. We just can't do anything about it. Well, this protective canopy did. It protected us. In fact, the climate of the antediluvian world was like a giant rainforest. 
And this explains dinosaurs and prehistoric vegetation, which couldn't really survive in this world, but did then. So, there is substantial geological evidence supporting a worldwide flood. If you don't want to see it, that's your decision, but there's substantial evidence. This cataclysmic event is explained away as ice ages or meteor strikes. And the biblical account makes perfect sense given our limited observation. That is what we can actually perceive and observe. Think about this. Have you ever stopped to think about this? Fossils. We all believe in fossils, right? They exist. Fossils that indicate an instant worldwide death and devastation. There are multiple examples of that. An instant worldwide death and devastation. It's so obvious that they have to come up with theories like a really quick ice age or a meteor strike. Have you ever thought about the fact that if a meteor struck, yes, it would possibly destroy the environment and it would possibly, the atmosphere would be affected, right? It would. How do all of the fossils end up buried in different layers? So, you know, when you start to think about it, a flood's the only logical explanation, really. It's at least a good theory, but we know it to be the truth. And here's one for you. Fossils that place shellfish and silt from the oceans on the top of mountains. How do you explain that? That's a fact. How do you explain that? Well, the flooding easily explains it. I'm not so sure that meteor strikes do, or ice ages. But they're not going to teach you or talk to you about those theories, because that's the truth of God's word. And if it ever was to be accepted as true, well, guess what happens? You are now morally accountable to the word of God. So we know what We know what the deal is, right? So knowing the truth about the past empowers us to live for God. It's why we study the past. Because if anything, the more you study God's word and and what it says about the past, the greater your faith becomes because you can see very clearly what actually happened and how God created the heavens and the earth. A lot of Christians for many years would avoid the subject of the flood or creation because they felt it was non-scientific. No, it's quite scientific. In fact, Science, falsely so-called, is still catching up with the truth of God's word. Anyway, let's move on then. Knowing the truth about the past empowers us to live for God, but knowing the truth about the future empowers us to live for God as well. And here's the truth about the future. Verses 7 through 9. By the same word, that is the word that created all things, the word that brought the flood, By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible because it spells it out for us. Let's talk a little bit about this. I think that's all we're going to take tonight. It's a lot to think about. We'll pick up with part two next week of the truth about Christ's return. But for now, let's just take a moment and think this through. Again, knowing the truth about the future, just like the past, it empowers us to live for God. I hope you feel empowered after considering the past. Now let's think about the future for a minute, because that also empowers us. The Holy Spirit has revealed to us that God will destroy the heavens and the earth. You know, it's amazing. There's so much talk about climate change. And I got news for you. The climate always changes. It's been changing as long as there's been a climate, actually since the flood. Some times are very warm, others are very cold. And I just want to know, even if it's a real threat, what in the world do you think we can actually do about it? I mean, when you think it through, what can you do about it? They want to take all of our money to try to solve a problem they can't solve. Maybe they just want our money. Have you thought about that? Or is it only me because I'm from New Jersey? Make up a problem, tax the heck out of everybody, 
Infringe upon everybody's rights. Why? To solve a problem that you can't solve. I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one that has glasses. I have glasses. Anybody else wearing glasses? I can see with my glasses. When I take them off, I can't see so well. I've got the glasses that show me what's going really going on really in this world. And you know what those glasses are? It's the word of God. Helps me to see the truth. I'm not trying to be a rebel. I'm just, anyone think anymore? (laughs) God will destroy the universe. He will. Talk about climate change. He's going to destroy the universe. He's going to destroy the heavens and the earth. The book of Revelation in chapter 20 tells us he's going to destroy the universe by speaking it into oblivion, just like he spoke it into creation. See, the heavens and the earth will only exist until the ungodly are judged. That's what we're told here. Once the ungodly are judged, the heavens and the earth are no longer going to exist. The heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. There will be a new heaven and earth, a new heaven and a new earth. There will be a new Jerusalem. That's something different. That's when God recreates or creates a new creation, just like he's created us to be new creations. He's going to create a creation for us a new creation. But right now, this existing creation is not destined to be forever. It will be destroyed. God tells us that throughout his word, and Peter attests to it here. The heavens and the earth will only exist, as it says here, until the ungodly are judged. I like what it says. The present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So when that day of judgment comes, there's no use for this heaven and earth they'll be destroyed. And God will create a new creation, a new heaven and earth. That's a little outside our topic beyond that, but let's continue. God will ultimately destroy all of his creation, and we're told in the remainder of this chapter, we'll probably get to it next week, his creation is going to be destroyed by extreme heat. Extreme heat. In fact, if you you look down in verse 10, it says, the heavens will disappear with a roar and the elements will be destroyed by fire. And, And if you go a little bit further down and you look at verse 12, latter part of verse 12, it says, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. So Peter's very clear. That's, that's the ultimate end of our universe. But that makes sense, doesn't it? If you know anything about science, it makes sense that It would be consumed in that way. By the way, what happens when an atom falls apart? When you split an atom? Guess what's released? Heat. Lots of it. We call that a thermal nuclear explosion. When the atom is split, or even when atoms are fused, heat is released. That happens every time that they want to create electricity in a in a nuclear power plant. They create that chemical reaction, that reaction, and heat is the result. Heat heats up the water, water turns to steam, steam turns to turbine, turbine makes electricity. Very simple. So it shouldn't be a surprise that when the elements melt with a fervent heat, it's because God basically lets it happen. In fact, it's pretty interesting. The Holy Spirit's revealed to us that God will judge the earth for a thousand years. Now, I want you to look at that because there's a couple of things we can infer when we look at that. Yes, God will destroy all things uh, by extreme heat, but we talk about the day of judgment as a day, like a 24-hour day, but it's actually a millennium. Look at verse 8. Do not forget this one thing. After talking about the destruction of the heavens and the earth, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Now, that's coming after the previous use of the word day, right? In verse 7, being kept for the day of judgment. So put it together. You got a day of judgment, but then he says, but don't forget this. Don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day, the day of judgment, It's like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. Now, there's a couple of things we can infer from that. The first is this. We know, according to Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, that Jesus will rule and reign on the earth during what's called the day of the Lord. And that's a thousand years. It's called the millennium, the day of the Lord, a millennium. It's not one day. It's a thousand years of judgment. The Holy Spirit's revealed this to us. God's going to judge the earth for a thousand years. 
The day of judgment will last the entire millennium. It's going to precede creation's end. So the very last thing that happens on this planet before it's destroyed is a thousand-year time of judgment when Jesus rules and reigns on the planet Earth. That's talked about in the book of Revelation in chapter 20. It's talked about in a number of places in Scripture, but specifically there. So I find it interesting that when we're talking about the destruction of the heavens and the earth, he mentions a thousand-year time period. I think that that is not a coincidence. I think it's to let us know, don't forget, the day of the Lord is really a thousand years. It's like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. It doesn't, with God, those things are irrelevant, because he's eternal. And that's another point, because it also speaks of the eternal nature of God, his great patience with us. Think about it this way, and this comes from Psalms chapter 90, verse 4. We studied it a number of months or years ago at this point. But this idea that the day of the Lord, or a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years are like a day, it speaks of God's great patience. You might be thinking, well, when is it going to happen? Any day now. (laughs) But the day of the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. So you start to think, oh, isn't this an answer, though, to what Peter said? When he said, they will say, where is this coming, he promised? Don't forget. A day is like a thousand years. A thousand years like a day. So in other words, God is extremely patient with his creation. Because if he wasn't, we'd be gone, right? Amen? If you were God, you you bet you would have already destroyed it. I I know I would have. And now just on the way in, if somebody cut me off, I would have done it in the car. Doesn't take much to get me to act out. But God is so patient and loving with us that a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. He is in no rush to bring judgment. That's the point. But when he does, his judgment will last a thousand years. I really believe that's the appropriate way to interpret that scripture from Psalm 90 verse 4. Listen, the Holy Spirit has revealed to us that God will mercifully wait that everyone might be saved. Look at the last verse we're going to look at tonight, verse 9. Again, one of my favorite verses. The Lord is not slow. Those scoffers who would say, where is, the, where is his coming? The coming he promised. He says, he answers and he says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. That is, he hasn't forgotten He's not late. As some understand slowness, no, it says he is patient. Amen? Can I hear an amen? Aren't you glad God is patient? What if the Lord destroyed everything or came back again to judge it all the day before you gave your life to him? Aren't you glad he waited a little while? What about next week? What about next week when one of your family members finally surrender their lives to Christ? Aren't you going to be glad that he didn't come back today? Yeah, you want him to come back today. I get it. I do too. But he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. You know, the Lord announced 120 years before the flood that he was going to bring the flood. We'll get to this at some point, but do you know that the name Methuselah means his death will bring? The idea that his death will bring judgment. Do you know that the oldest man that ever lived was Methuselah? It's as if God said, when this guy dies, I'm going to bring the flood. And when he died, the flood came. It was true. But isn't it interesting that he didn't live 20 years? He lived almost a thousand, a thousand years. Close to it. You see, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's what we read here. So when he declared a prophecy that in the year that Methuselah would die, the flood would come, Methuselah was the man who lived the most years of anyone that ever lived. And he told them it would be 120 years. It could have been 120 minutes, but no. It was 120 years because he's patient. Because one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. How are people going to come to repentance if they don't know the truth about creation and the flood? How are they going to come to repentance if they don't know the truth about the cross? 
if they don't know the truth about sin and judgment and death, that sin brings death. If we wink at sin, if we say that sin is okay or we don't talk about sin, we're just dooming people to, to death for eternity. So I think preaching the truth about sin, whatever that sin is, is the most loving thing a Christian can do. I know that to be true. And yet we're patient the way our Lord is patient. He is merciful. God will mercifully wait that everyone might be saved. And the reason for Christ delaying his return is his grace and mercy toward mankind. The way he was slow to bring the flood, he's been slow to bring judgment. The promise of his second coming is just as true today as when it was given. Jesus is coming soon, like the song we sang this evening in worship. It's not a lack of power that prolongs his return, but a loving restraint. It is God's will and a desire that no one should perish in eternal judgment apart from him that causes him to be patient and to wait. God is sovereign. That means he's in control of all things. But he's not going to force anyone to love him. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, this scripture tells us. Anyone can come to him, but only through repentance in Christ, according to Romans chapter 10. All can come to him. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. When you call upon the name of the Lord, you're not just saying, Jesus, you're saying, Jesus, save me. And not just save me, but save me from my sins. That's called repentance. And all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is God's way, his only way, the way, the truth, and the life. God's only way of salvation for any that would choose to be saved. This day, don't resist the Holy Spirit. Don't shun God's mercy and his grace. Give your life to him, afresh and anew, because he's extremely patient. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all, all should come to repentance. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your patience. I'm so grateful that you've held back your judgment as long as you have. Oh, we deserve judgment, but you're merciful and kind and long-suffering, abounding in mercy. Oh, to sinners throughout the ages, you've showed your great kindness, your great love that you died on a cross for our sins, paid the price and the penalty for sin, rose again on the third day to give us newness of life, entered into heaven, ever, lay, ever lived to make intercession at the right hand of the throne of God, and you're coming again to judge the living and the dead. And while we pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Lord, we also recognize that part of your will being done on earth is that all will come to repentance. May we be co-laborers with your ministry, the ministry of your Holy Spirit and the truth of your word, that we might reach the world for Jesus Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.